Hey everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses. This is Kent Dobson, your host. Uh, thanks for listening, thanks for being here. Now that the big bad orange man is out, or on the way out, or supposedly the big bad wolf, where are on whom are we going to place all of our racism and homophobia, misogyny and uh, greed and envy and um, our lust for power? Who are we going to put that on now? Does that mean we're going to have to carry it? What is going to happen? Yes, today I want to talk about the scapegoat. I want to talk about what is a scapegoat. I'm going to go way back. I'm going to go back to my biblical and historical roots as if I ever leave it anyway. I want to talk to you about where the very idea of the scapegoat came from. And I want to talk about how it works in a contemporary setting and why we put all of our unsavory uh, bits on other people and don't know it. And what amounts to, I think, a massive opportunity right now to own some of that stuff back. Because scapegoating, in the most general sense, uh, putting on to someone else the problem and sending them away is <laughs> basically, um, that's at the roots of a lot of political ideology. That's at, that helps name a motive, uh, many political motivations. It's also part of cancel culture. Um, scapegoating, the scapegoating mechanism happens on the, the right and the left. Nobody seems to be getting out of it, but not that many people are talking about it as an opportunity for increased consciousness. And that's what I want to do today in this little podcast that I'm calling The Scapegoat. So special thanks to my patron supporters on Patreon. Really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. You inspire me to make this podcast and to keep going, especially now when you know, most of the other stuff that I do on the side, like Israel trips and wilderness retreats and things like that, are on hold. Um, I'm just really grateful for my patrons. And thanks for sending me your little comments and questions. It inspires me. It gives me ideas. Let's keep the conversation going. And everyone else, thanks for listening. I mean, really, honestly, share it with people. I mean, that's how, if someone shares with me a podcast that they found helpful or interesting, I will listen to it. That's how good stuff is spread around. So if you find anything in here helpful, a hint, a guess, a clue, share it with your friends, your family, whoever. Um, and I will be grateful for that. So, all right, where to begin? Of all the things that have made it into contemporary, um, the contemporary lexicon from the Bible, this is one of the most direct. There is a ritual in Leviticus called the scapegoat. I mean, it's not called that in Hebrew. I'll give you that in a second. But um, the very notion of putting on to something um, in a symbolic form, placing on the head of something else, comes from Leviticus, from this ancient, and I think brilliant, I think genius, absolutely psychological genius at work here in this uh, ancient ritual, which lasted for minimum, minimum a thousand years uh, of constant use. That is a long time for a ritual to be working. 
and for it to still have meaning. So what is it? Um, it's connected to a, uh, a special day of the year in the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is when the sins of the people for that year, I want to emphasize, are atoned for. And let me say it even more directly or more specifically, not only the sins of the, of the year that they knew of, because that's one thing, all right, I've, I've committed a lot of sins and I know about them, also sins they didn't. Now, already that tells you ancient people were very sophisticated. Now, they didn't call it the unconscious. <laughs> um, they may have called it the underworld, but they didn't call it the unconscious, but they knew that they may be guilty of things that they were not aware of. I mean, that is a kind a level of sophistication that modern people still struggle with. Um, if I can't see it, touch it, taste it, know it, it's not mine. It's, an, it's not true. It's not mine to own. If I'm not aware of it, it's not true. Well, like I said, they're a little more sophisticated. And they said, ah, oh, there must be sins that we commit that we're unaware of. So we need to atone for those as well. We need to have them forgiven by God, by the forces of the divine, because that's a heavy burden. Consciousness itself is a, an enormous burden, not only to know that we're going to die, but that our actions cause suffering in the world and that our actions cause unnecessary suffering in the world. What a burden to bear. I mean, who would want to be human in that sense? We carry this around all the time. So how are we going to function if we know our actions and, and things we don't even know we've done are causing pain and suffering in the world? There must be a way to atone, to make that right. Atonement, I know uh, if, if, you're, um, if you're from a Christian background, especially Protestant Christian background, we, we think of atonement as something specific with Jesus' blood, that we're a big problem to God and he's got to sprinkle us with Jesus' blood. And this, this, it's really rooted in the ritual that I'm describing here. Um, but we forget the origin of the word itself. It just means at one meant. We need to come back to a sense of oneness, of wholeness, of unity, because the consciousness that we carry around uh, about our own sins, and that just means uh, failure to miss the mark, we miss the mark as human beings, that creates a burden. And wouldn't it be great if once a year we felt at one? Wouldn't it be great if there were rituals that helped us feel more whole, more connected, more at one with the universe, with nature, and with my neighbor, with my spouse, with my kids? Yes. And that's what the Day of Atonement was about. So it's a very long and elaborate ritual. I think this is Leviticus chapter 16, if I'm not mistaken, um, somewhere around there, 16 or 18. Uh, it's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, and I just want to get to one specific part of the ritual. So at a certain point, two goats are brought before the high priest after he's done all kinds of cleansing and washing and ritual bathing and putting on white and all this kind of elaborate ceremonial stuff. Two goats are, are, are brought before him and they cast lots, which is like, you know, like gambling, like throwing dice to see which goat went for a kind of sin offering and which went as the scapegoat or in Hebrew, Azazel which is a very mysterious word. It may actually be a pagan word. It may have something to do with a kind of desert demon. You'll see why in a moment. But one went to the Azazel, the scapegoat, and the other went as a whole burnt offering, a sin offering that would be offered up. Um, and maybe that's another podcast for another time about why were they cutting up animals ritually? Well, it's far more interesting than what people think. Um, in a way, it's acknowledging that 
life and death are interrelated. And my life, the fact that I'm a living, breathing human being, comes at the cost of the death of something, from a carrot to a goat. So we better make that sacred, better honor that ceremonially. We better There better be a lot of, um, of ritual around the taking and giving of life. That's really you know, what's behind sacrifice. In any case, the lot that um, falls to the scapegoat, something very interesting happens. At a certain point in the ceremony, the high priest comes out and puts his hands on the head of the goat and confesses the sins of the people and in a way asks the goat to carry symbolically the sins of the people, including his own, Sins they committed that they know they committed, and sins they committed that they don't know they committed, they take it all, places it on the head of the goat, and sends it out into the desert. That's what the Azazel, like the desert, there's a kind of desert demon or spirit, might be a better way of saying it, that probably predates um, the Israelite religion that's um, that they're borrowing from, we could say, or it's just part of was already part of their rituals. We're not sure. It doesn't matter. Um, But they place it on the Azazel and they send it out of the camp. And by the time we get to closer to Jesus's time period in the second temple, they add a couple things because they didn't want this desert um, goat to wander back. So they pushed it off a cliff, which is very interesting. Um, It tells you what the original intention was all along, which is to send it out to the wilderness to die as a kind of sacrifice to the wilderness, to the desert demon, you know, whatever. Um, But more importantly, as the bearer, I mean, who could bear that? Uh, The sins of the people. And of course, if you're familiar with Christian theology, sometimes Jesus is seen in a very similar light. And that's probably worth saying at this point, because he's taken outside the camp. Um, Christian theology has the very same thing, where he symbolically carries the sins of the people um, uh, on his head, you know, this kind of thing, with the crown of thorns. There there are lots of um, symbolic uh, overtones here. And he's killed, he's he's killed, and, and and, and, and is sacrificed. And somehow the people are forgiven. They're felt, they come to a sense of onement uh, around the death of this goat who wanders out into the wilderness, or in the case of Jesus, who dies outside the camp, outside the village, um, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, and there's an at-one-ment, an atonement that's happening. So very interesting um, mechanism. Now, why would we need such a thing? Well, I've kind of already suggested that, but I want to add something to it. It's, um, and that has to do with consciousness. Remember, this ritual happens every single year. Every single year, according to Jewish tradition, you, everyone puts on white, they confess their sins out loud, they say, I'm sorry for anything I've done over the year, they go to their neighbors, they ask for forgiveness, um, they try to make things right, and then there's the Day of Atonement where, in a symbolic sense, they're made right with the universe and with God every single year. And the ask was to bring consciousness. I have made a mistake. I carry things. I've missed the mark. I've lost the way. And I've done things that I'm unaware of that has caused suffering and pain and grievances in the world. All of that I want to own first, confess that, 
place it on the head of the goat and send it out of the camp. Then I can feel a little bit better, at least for the next year. I can feel like I've tried to face my own stuff. And this is the difference between the ancient symbolic expression of the scapegoat, which involved a certain measure of consciousness and how it's used now. Right now, when we, quote, scapegoat people, we put all kinds of stuff on them and we think it's not ours to carry. They are the ones that have the problem. It's on their head. And if we send them out of the camp to die, we'll feel better about ourselves because at least the enemy, so to speak, the bearer of all the sins is not among us. And I can remain pure and righteous and moral and ethically superior because that person has the problem. Do you feel the difference between how the contemporary version of scapegoating, I'm going to blame somebody and send them away, and the ancient version, which is I'm going to confess something, acknowledge that it's mine to own, and I might have done things that I'm not even aware of, and then place that on the goat and send them out of the camp. There's a huge difference between... Um, between the original ancient expression of the Azazel, the, scapes, the scapegoat, and how it's used in a contemporary sense. I think that's probably as much as I want to say from the book of Leviticus. Um, so let, let, now let's, let's crack the door a little bit further on some opportunities that I think we have now, personal and as a nation. So I already made a podcast on the shadow, which is probably worth checking out because the scapegoat and how scapegoating is used in contemporary sense is related to the shadow. The shadow, by definition, is what we don't know about ourselves. It's our repressed qualities, whether they're golden or sinister. They're repressed. We simply don't know we have them. And what depth psychology has taught us is the way those shadow elements come out is very interesting. It comes out in the form of projections and transferences. We project onto someone else what we can own, or we transfer, which is related in a way, some unfinished business, usually from childhood, onto someone else, and they carry that. So both of those, projection and transference, are two different things, but they're related enough uh, in the way that I'm using it here. So our internal stuff we put onto other people, whether we're transferring it from childhood, unfinished business, like, you know, a parent figure, a mentor, that, uh, whatever, we put that on, um, we put that on someone, um, or a, an outright projection, which is some internal component that we cannot own, that we are absolutely convinced the other person carries and we don't, which brings us to politics. So, what the right and the left are guilty of, without question, is our massive projections. That person over there is a socialist, um, a Marxist, an enemy of the truth, um, is fake, um, you know, whatever. Um, or that person is a racist, a bigot. Uh, is power hungry, is greedy, is a misogynist, is sexist. And the funny thing about projections is that it's not that they're always false. Sometimes the person who bears our projections is in fact one or more of those things that I just named. Um, and 
But it doesn't matter so much whether or not, let's just pick one, whether or not so-and-so is a racist. It doesn't matter so much when it comes to projection because the way projection is working is that that person over there is carrying it so I don't have to. And if I can send them out of the camp, like in an election, then it's gone. And you see already that this is not going to work as a strategy. And let me say some things that really have scared me in the wake of the election. Um, so I heard someone on the left say this, that I am terrified. This is a direct quote, famous author. I'm not going to name her, but um, I am terrified of half of the people in this country. Do you see how she's working up to the scapegoat mechanism? Those people over there terrify me because they're whatever, racist, backwards, um, you know, whatever she might say. I'm not, I'm in the other millions who are not, they are the problem, and if, they simp if we simply get rid of them, we would be a nice, pure nation. Um, and here's something else I heard. Any vote for Trump, also from a, a pretty well-known author, is deeply and fundamentally rooted in racism. I think, no, nope, that's not true, and that's not how racism works. Um, racism doesn't divide up into neat camps and the 70 million people that voted for Trump equal racists. That is such small-minded thinking that I cannot believe this person was on national public radio. So, um, nope, that's not how racism works. Uh, and I've, I've said other things about racism on this podcast in the past, so I don't want to repeat myself necessarily. Um, but all of us, carry a certain measure of racism. In fact, there are, there are biological and evolutionary reasons for that, where we prefer, or we seem to prefer, the brain prefers in its most limbic, lizard-like um, uh, forms, uh, skin colors that look like ours. It's the way we've divided up who's safe and who's not. So to pretend that a political party is racist is stupid. It's just absolutely stupid. No, we all carry it to certain degrees. The question is, how much consciousness are we going to bring to it? So like, let's take race, for example. The only way forward when it comes to, um, when, when it comes to, to this particular problem on the psychological level is to first own it. See, I have to say, and I'll say it to you, honestly, I carry racism. Some of it I can see and a lot of it I can't. I can't see it. So I think it doesn't exist. So, but I have to own it and say, I, um, am racist and I have the capacity to act in a racist way, and I'm sure I've acted in a racist way and can't see it. Do you, do you see how if I don't own it, there's no way forward? Otherwise, I just put it on other people. Well, good thing I, you know, I've never tweeted anything racist, therefore I'm pure, <laughs> you know, or something like that. That kind of, that kind of um, dividing up of the world is not helping anyone. So I hope I'm making some sense at this point. So let's just, just so that we're clear, let's name categories of people that tend to function as a scapegoat in our culture. So immigrants, hey, um, 
they're coming into our country, they're taking our jobs, they, um, you know, and, you know, Trump has said some pretty terrible things, taking the worst possible people that have ever immigrated in this country and making blanket statements like they're drug dealers and rapists and all kinds of other things. Um, see, it's not, it's not such a matter of going person by person and, and saying, does anyone fit these categories? Because surely someone fits some of those categories, but it's the blanket statement. It's the way in which an entire group here can, can be the scapegoat for us. And if we can put it all on the immigrant, we can send them out of the camp, send them back across the border, and we can remain pure and righteous and, and get rid of the problem. We don't have to own it. See, now what does this have to do with projection and shadow? What is it that we can't own? And I'll tell it to you as plainly as I can. If you are listening to this podcast... And you, are not of a and you are not a Native American, you are an immigrant. It's really that simple. I am an immigrant. I, it's much closer to me because my dad immigrated from Northern Ireland at the age of 14. So I'm the son of an immigrant. Uh, my dad had an accent. He got rid of it over time because he got too much attention for it. But when I was little, he had a, an Irish accent. So I'm very close to the... To, admitting I'm an immigrant in this country. So how easy would it be for me to say the problem is immigrants? Do you, see, you can see the irony when I point it out like that. Um, and people will say, well, yeah, but mine was different, you know, yeah, my, but mine was legal or, uh, well, mine was in a different era. All of that might be true, but it still um, digs around in the thing that we don't own. If we can't own I came here as an immigrant, my ancestors came here as an immigrant, and they did terrible things to the native population who was peacefully, well, I don't know if people, I don't want to live under, there's a kind of illusion that anthropologists um, and some, some sociologists have about the United States, that it was, it was basically the Garden of Eden until white people got here. You know, that I doubt. That's just not how human beings and tribes and civilizations work throughout time uh, across all continents. Anywhere you find in the world, you have uh, wars and rumors of wars and greed and envy and stealing and all kinds of stuff. So I don't want to turn it into a paradise, but... It wasn't ours, and we came over here and did what we wanted to whom we wanted against a people group that didn't have as much power. And that's what colonialism, that's what, empire is, uh, that's what um, empires do. So we have to own it. If we want to own back the projection of the problem is the immigrant, we have to start by saying, I am one. I mean, the irony that Trump is married to an immigrant is just off the charts. You know, I know she was legal and blah, 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 but doesn't matter. Um, that's, we're talking about how the psyche works here. Immigrants, foreigners, um, you know, and the Bible actually has something to say about this. The Bible says, do not mistreat the foreigner and the immigrant and the alien that lives among you because you were once foreigners and immigrants and aliens in Egypt. Don't forget where you came from. I mean, it's just that direct advice in the Hebrew scriptures because it's so easy once you come into a position of power to not to 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 forget that to a certain extent and turn around and commit some crimes that you would have just previously railed against, if that makes sense. 
Um, what else do I want to add here? I don't know if I want to add, I was going to go through a whole list of things here, um, of groups or categories that we tend to um, project our stuff onto, but maybe it's better to say, what do you think? <laughs> Who are the groups on the right or the left that you tend to blame, point fingers, say they are the problem, and, and if you were honest about it, would say the difference between me and them is that I don't really carry any of this stuff, and they do. Who are the groups that you, that, that you tend to scapegoat? That's a much more interesting question, I think, than um, if I were just to give you a giant list, that kind of thing. Um, all right, what else um, might I say here? Because I don't, I don't want to make this podcast too long. Um, concerning the shadow, one more bit on the shadow, is that human beings are complicated. And one of the, the things that I've been saying or using lately to help people understand the complexity of the human psyche is to think about it like a village. So just beneath the ego and beneath your mask, your persona, your online personality, your posting personality, and beneath your ego, who you think you are, there's a village down there. And there are all kinds of characters. There's a wounded child. There's a loyal soldier. Um, there's a victim down in there. These are sub-personalities. There's a princess or a prince. Um, there's a, there's a, what's a, there's the fly boy, the fly girl, the puel, um, who just wants to fly above and transcend ordinary reality. You know, There's a village down there, and they vie for power and influence on your life. And there are also some darker things down in there that we don't like to admit, that we really, really don't like to admit, and sometimes we don't even know they're there, like greed and lust and even murder. There's a Cain capable of killing Abel with a stone out in the field. Yep, it's in there. There's hatred. We say, no, no, hatred is just learned by your social environment. No, I don't think it's that simple. It's part of the village of the collective unconscious. It's part of your own personal village. It's down in there. It doesn't mean that you're destined to act that way. No, quite the opposite. But to deny that it's there is what's dangerous. Greed, lust, murder, hatred. There's racism. There's envy. You know there's envy. I mean, that's why people just absolutely delight and revel and love hating celebrities. It's like if somebody makes a mistake, says the wrong word, says the wrong phrase, we find out in college they did X. I mean, we are just like, we like... Um, we glow. Maybe that's where the phrase green with envy. I don't know. Um, we glow. Like we, it's a kind of inner delight. Um, and when they, when they fall from grace. Because we're envious. We're actually envious. That's the truth. And there's a deep part in there that's, that's vengeful, that seeks revenge. You know? You know, when Trump got coronavirus, the revenge subpersonality, which I would say, oh, there's not, a, there's not a vengeful bone in my body, was like, see, I told you. You know, now who wants to admit that? And I'm admitting it in public on a podcast. So, um, yeah, there's also that. Yeah, there's revenge. 
There's even malevolence, a kind of dark capacity for evil, for evil's sake. Now, some of you might disagree. You say, no, 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 I just believe that human beings are actually born good and, and all this stuff is learned. And I, I don't think so. I think that, that human history and the hundred years of psychology beg to differ. And I think we serve the world better by not um, uh, using the scapegoat to be the carrier of all these unsavory parts of, of being a human. Now, you might ask, why, if they're down there, why are we not very conscious of them? And this is where a word like repression gets a bad rap. Uh, repression is an extremely helpful tool. <laughs> Some genius part of our human makeup represses this stuff because it's unsavory. And it happens pretty early on. And it's a good thing that we repress some of this stuff. Our greed, our lust, our murder, our hatred, our racism, our envy, our revenge, our malevolence. It's a good thing because we wouldn't be functioning members of society. We wouldn't go to school and hand in pieces of paper and get a grade. None of that would happen. We wouldn't hold down a job. We couldn't be a reliable spouse. It's a good thing there's repression because when we're psychologically immature, this stuff has to go into the underground. When the ego is just developing, it has to be repressed. It's actually kind of amazing that it happens. It's just that in the second half of life, that stuff starts to leak out. What was originally suppressed to keep us safe starts to leak out. And suddenly we have a fit of anger when people would all agree. And I would say of myself, there's not an angry bone in my body. Well, where did it come from? It was there all along. It just was repressed. (laughs) And to go into that dungeon is to begin to do some real depth work. And I think one of the tasks of the 21st century, if you want to make it to the 22nd century, is to go into the dungeon. This is what the old myths say. You got to go in and face the dragon. And facing the dragon means not biting off more than you can chew, but slowly, over time, taking bites out of these repressed elements and saying, yep, I carry greed, and I'm going to own it, and I'm going to look at it, and... Um, I'm going to be honest about it and, and therefore it won't have as much power over me. Therefore, I might even see, um, that there's something good even just beneath this greedy element. Uh, and this is, we're talking about some, 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 uh, deep work here, but, um, I probably can't say much more about that on, on, on a podcast, Um, but the suggestion is to go within and to begin to own back. You know, Robert Bly says, um, we spend the first half of our lives stuffing a bunch of stuff into a long black bag that we drag behind us. And we spend the second half very slowly taking it out. And, and I like that. I think I'm adding very slowly, but he says something like that, slowly taking it out. Um, Because that's what it's like to keep growing, to keep maturing. Do you want a world that just continues to blame and create enemies and finger point and scapegoat and say the other side is the problem? I mean, if this election is not teaching us anything, it's that the the so-called division right down the center of America isn't going anywhere. 
70 million people voted for Trump, 73 million people voted for Biden. Some people didn't vote, uh, probably as many millions didn't vote, and you have some, some percentage of people that voted for somebody else. So do you want to just create a world of enemies? You know, I know Biden in his acceptance speech says that, every, that we're Americans and we have to stop creating enemies. Now, that might just be empty rhetoric. We'll, we'll see how, he, how his administration forms. But what kind of person do you want to be? Because you can pay, pay lip service to that and then behave in an entirely different way. And definitely don't act like the left isn't mean. The left is mean and the right is mean to its enemies. And they're filled with um, these scapegoating tendencies. So the question for us, I think, is what am I going to own? And some of this, listen to my shadow podcast if you want some suggestions. Maybe I'll give you just um, one or two. Um, make a list of someone, some side, some position, some person that really, really gets under your skin. Like really, you are convinced. You wouldn't say it, but it's something like they're pretty much Satan. Yeah, make a list and then treat that person as an ally. <laughs> that has something to teach you. So take someone that has a strong charge. It could be just someone from the television um, that has a particular, it just hooks you in just the right way and treat them as an ally. What does this person have to teach me? Um, what is this screen uh, reflecting back to me? What is this mirror reflecting back to me? What if I made a list of absolutely everything I'm convinced that they do in the world? or that they're like in the world. Make a long list. They're like this, they're like this, they're like this, and then look at that list and say, do I ever act like this? Or ask someone that you care, that, you, that cares for you, do I ever act like this? And if the answer is yes, you know what's happening. <laughs> the shadow projection mechanism as it, is at work and you are in the process of scapegoating and blaming and trying to send them out of the camp instead of owning it yourself. And the question is something like, if I act like this, how am I going to own that? How am I going to own that back so that this other person doesn't have to carry my internal projections? Something like that. And you might even, in this very long list of things, grievances you have against them, you might accidentally bump into something that you also admire but don't want to admit. This is often happens with shadowy type figures, scapegoating figures. You know, think about Jesus being sent out of the camp. Probably the high priest who wanted him out. And Pilate, who was the one uh, under whom Jesus was crucified, if they were to make a long list, I bet somewhere on that, on that list, they would admire someone that's willing to die for what they believe in. Even though they're responsible for the ones saying, if we just get rid of this person, scapegoat, blame them, send them out of the camp, and kill them, the problem will go away. See, it doesn't, it's, it's always a little more complicated than that. So it's like a love-hate thing. They blame, they blame, they blame, but there's also a little bit of admiration. So that's um, maybe an exercise worth taking up. So maybe you heard a hint, a clue, a guess, um, something to inspire, challenge, shake up, stir the pot. Thanks for listening today, and I'll see you next time. Peace.